Hello and welcome to a Hoover Institution Roundtable discussion on Reagan's Soviet policy as a guide to dealing with Iran, North Korea, and other rogue regimes. Our speaker in this recording is Michael McFall, a Peter and Helen Bing Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of political science and the director of the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. He served as the U.S. Ambassador to the Russian Federation from January 2012 to February 2014. His remarks were recorded on March 23, 2016. So I'm going to try to be brief, too, and mostly ask questions, not give answers. Um, and and I, I took very seriously my assignment, which is there, are there lessons from the Reagan era for our current period? And my, my bluff, my bottom line up front, is it depends. Uh, which is to say that um, some of the strategies uh, from the Reagan era uh, should be remembered and tried again uh, and can succeed. Uh, some of them are not appropriate for the situation today. And the last category I really want to flag is sometimes you can run uh, the same play, do exactly all the right things, but if you're dealing with a different opponent, I, I coach I coach basketball for my kids. And you know, the, the greatest strategy uh, applied to one team works well, and doing exactly the same thing in a different with a different uh, enemy or a different competitor, competitor's probably a better word, doesn't work. And I think that's really important to remember when we're trying to have generalized principles for how to deal with these, these kind of regimes, okay? So that, if I don't get to my, down to my sixth point, you, you know what my bottom line up front is. First, uh, to engage or not engage authoritarian regimes, there seems to be quite a bit of agreement here, and I knew George was going to say what he did. Uh, Re-engaging the Soviets realistically is one of his chapters here, and it's very important to remember that in the Reagan era, that was started before Gorbachev, as, as George already said. This is frequently misunderstood when I speak about uh, what you all did to end the Cold War, um, and I think it's an important lesson uh, when you say, well, we shouldn't engage with X, Y, and Z, to remind yourselves that the lessons from the Reagan era was engagement before Gorbachev. It's mostly true, but not always. So, you know, we can go through some of the contemporary cases now. Uh, most certainly that argument for the Obama administration is partly what animates them with their trip to Cuba right now. I know that for a fact. It'd be interesting to debate whether you think that's the right application from the Reagan era to that case. I see upside and downside of that. Um, moreover, with the case of Russia, I was, you know, uh, this was our Bible in the first years of the Obama administration when I worked at the White House in terms of how to deal with the Russians. I'm going to get to some other comparisons in a minute. But when Putin annexed Crimea and invaded eastern Ukraine, it was not right just to go back to engagement at that moment. And, and just to say that we got to talk to them because we got to talk to them, in my opinion, um, you know, which I've written many times, I was out of the government by the time, to just re-engage right away without costs, and that's going to get to me to strength, was inappropriate. So just applying chapter 27, I think it is, you know, uh, rotely in every case would be wrong. Um, last thing on engagement, and this is also something I've learned from Secretary Schultz, engagement is not a goal. Engagement is a means to your agenda, right? As George said, it sometimes gets to be a problem where means and ends get confused. Second, pressure the regime or engage the regime to modernize. You all just debated it. That's the fundamental question, right? Uh, in terms of 
using American power or, or regimes before us before. And I, I just want to say it depends. I, I don't think there's a road answer that says either sanctions until the Iranian regime collapses or, uh, um, uh, you know, modernization that you were kind of, you know, the modernization. Marty Lipset's theory about how you're going to have democracy in China is bring them in, have them in the global economy, and eventually the middle class will demand those rights. And, and you know, I'm not going to go through the cases. I've written a book about this. But, but I would, would caution against a kind of uh, one or the other of those cases. I can tell you where pressure had a profound positive impact on regime change. Syria, uh, sorry, Serbia uh, in, in the late 90s and uh, 2000, where uh, real pressure on that regime helped to bring it down. Um, other cases, Cuba, sanctions, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to see the argument how sanctions helped to bring about regime change, right? Likewise, modernization theory. I can, I can think about even the Soviet case in some ways is an example of that. But the, the case that, that gets made in the government, including when I was there, about China, it's not so clear to me that modernization yet, I mean, maybe it's too early in the story, but, but I can see a different scenario where modernization does not lead to democratization, and therefore we have to think about it. By the way, the Soviet case here I think is really important because there are some that say, it was all pressure, and, and now, you know, I'm sitting here next to, I'm going to call him now Secretary Schultz, so it's odd for me to be saying this. Uh, it would be interesting to hear George, I know what he's written, but it would be interesting to hear what he said now. There's a common argument out there that, you know, we spent them in the ground, SDI, and then they just had to change. Um, and I think that's partially true, but not entirely true. It's partially true in that when Mikhail Sergeyevich took over in 1985, when you visited to meet him, and we met actually at the embassy because I was a student, uh, and the vice president and Secretary Schultz came by to cheer us on. And I remember you saying, uh, he seems like a different guy. But imagine a guy like Putin taking over in the spring of 1985. Putin would have had very different instincts about how to deal with that pressure. Putin would have had very different instincts how to deal with, with the Hungarians and the Poles. And he most certainly would have had different instincts in January 2000, uh, 1991, when there were protests and, the, and, and special forces went in, uh, and then Gorbachev stopped it. Putin wouldn't have stopped it, in my view. And just to assume that, that Gorbachev was the inevitable next leader in 1985, I think, is wrong. Uh, and likewise, to assume that, that what you could do with Gorbachev, you can now do with Putin, is also wrong. I know both those individuals well. They're very different people with very different worldviews, radically different worldviews. And this notion of leadership, which in my world, I'm a political scientist, just gets written out of history and written out of our analysis. I've come to believe that we really underestimate the importance of individuals like Gorbachev and individuals like Reagan, who when Gorbachev turned out to be different, had the courage and the strength to pivot to engage him. Not every president would have that courage and strength of their convictions, convictions to do that with him. Third, talk about values. It's already been talked about. Uh, here, I think it's an unequivocal yes, private and publicly. Uh, you know, Ronald Reagan did it uh, privately, as George was just talking about. He also did it at, at Moscow State University, May 1988, with Lenin staring right down at him. Uh, I think one should do that. Uh, by the way, President Obama went to Russia his first trip 
modeled exactly after the Reagan trip in 1988. Uh, we chose not to go to the state university. We wanted to make a statement to go to a private university. But, you know, go read the speech, and you'll see lots of echoes from 1988. Um, uh, the, the, uh, and I say that because running the same play in, in 2000, 1988 and running it in 2009 had different outcomes, not because, in my view, of the play that was run. Uh, because in one case, there was a Gorbachev, and in the other case, Putin came back to power. By the way, don't forget that there was this little coup thing that happened in August 1991. Imagine if the, the folks that led it won we would be looking at the history of the end of the Cold War very differently, radically differently. And to, to say as we do, we always write it from the, you know, the history, you know, I'm looking at my historian friends, and once we know the outcome, then we go back and we, we connect the dots to explain why. But those are, were some pretty contingent outcomes, in my opinion. Uh, and those speeches and that engagement might have looked very different. All right, I'm going on too long. Fourth, engage society and the Democrats. Uh, my answer is yes just as Ronald Reagan did. Uh, and when I was in the government, we did. I mean, when Barack Obama was in Russia, he sat down with Gary Kasparov here and Boris Nemtsov here, modeled exactly after the luncheon that uh, Ronald Reagan and, and Secretary Schultz and his team did at Spasso House, May two, 19, uh, uh, 1988. Um, the problem with that is when the president then went on to China, they said, no way in hell. We're not going to let you do that. It was, it was four months later. Everybody was really excited how well it went in Moscow in 2009. And they said, we're not going to do it. And then you're put in the place, do you not go to China because they're not going to let you meet with the dissidents? Or do you go there anyway because of the first principle? And, and I just raise that as a question. I don't know the answer, but it, it was real, a very, very concrete thing. Interestingly, in Cuba, they let the president meet with the dissidents, um, different than what the Chinese did when he was there. Uh, fifth, fund the Democrats. I, I know you, you, this was a theme from before, and I would just say it depends. I think one of the best instruments of foreign policy invented in the last 30 or 40 years was the National Endowment for Democracy uh, that came out of uh, Ronald Reagan's Westminster speech. Uh, they've done some fantastic work around the world. I've written about it as an academic, uh, including in places like Serbia. But the truth of the matter is uh, NED cannot do today in China or Iran or Russia, what they did in places like Serbia or even Chile and the Philippines, by the way, they were involved there. So what do you do about that? Um, and you know, to your point about thinking of new creative ways to do it, I agree, and maybe in questions we can get to that, but there, there becomes this, this debate that I had in the government both 20 years ago as an outsider and then in the government <clears throat> Uh, in fact, one of these NGOs had the, exactly your idea of, uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, training the bureaucrats to, you know, bring him and train the mid-level bureaucrats. And there was a senator, Jesse Helms, you may remember him, uh, when he got word of this, he said, we're going to use American money to, to, to train communists? Uh, he said a little more emphatically than I did, by the way. I, I was there at his hearing. Uh, we're not going to do that. That's helping the regime that's not bringing it down. So I just, because you, you said it, Charles, I just remembered that, and, and I think about it with some of our AID programs that we have today. My own view is it should all be private funding. I totally agree with you. Uh, Ned is in this special space, but USAID, and especially the State Department, should get out of the business of giving money to anybody. 
It just taints, I used to be there. I used to have that money. And, and any time I, as a U.S. ambassador, gave somebody a check, I mean, my staff did, it just made things worse for them. So making it private, I, on that I totally agree. Um, and then last, just it's a hard question that I, I struggled with in the government. Um, but the question of linkage, I think, is a very important lesson uh, to, to struggle with from the Reagan <coughs> because Correct me if I'm wrong, George, but, but you had a non-linkage strategy, believing that we could talk about, you know, as you say in your first meeting with Gromyko, you know, we're going to talk about human rights, right? That, that's, uh, and we're not going to change the channel. Uh, that's the subject for this morning's meeting. Uh, and then we're going to talk about arms control. But you're not going to link the, try to get leverage in one place for the other. I generally think that's right. Uh, and I most certainly, uh, when I served in the government, uh, believe that emphatically. I can tell you that we were roundly criticized uh, from uh, human rights uh, activists, in, mostly in Washington, not in Moscow, by the way, uh, for not using this kind of linkage in a much more explicit way. And the big, the big debate for us was about, was about capitalism and, and the economy. We had a view that it was in America's national interest to have Russia in the WTO. A bipartisan view for 18 years, by the way. The Bush administration believed that. Clinton administration believed that. We thought that was right. Uh, there were others that said, no, not until X, Y, and Z is done in terms of human rights, invoking Jackson Vanek, you know, a, a new Jackson Vanek. And I thought at the time that's right, and I'm, I'm a little more confused today. And I'll just end at that. Thanks. more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.